Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Bye. Hey y'all and welcome to an international episode of Unladylike, no passports required. This is a podcast where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline. And today we're doing something a little different. Our producer, Claire Rollinson, is actually going to tell us a story, so we're going to turn things over to her. And just a quick heads up before we dive in, in this episode we will be discussing some heavy stuff like violence towards women and children. Well, hey, Claire. Hi. You brought an idea to us for an episode that you were really interested in doing, so could you give us a rundown of what we're in the studio talking about today? Yeah, so I wanted to tell you the story of Rosie Batty, the Rosie Batty. I feel like such an ignorant American right now. Please tell <laughs> us who Rosie Batty is. Okay. Well, Rosie is really well known in Australia, but not so much internationally. Rosie is kind of a hero for basically being the woman who shifted the way the whole country thinks about domestic violence. See, Rosie is a survivor. So I'm going to tell you what happened, and it's pretty disturbing. On February 12, 2014, Rosie's ex-partner, a man named Greg Anderson, murdered their only son, Luke. He was 11 years old. Oh, my God. That's, I, I mean, it's both horrifying and heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah. And at the time, Greg only had access rights to see Luke in public places. So he showed up to Luke's cricket training that evening, took him aside for some father-son cricket practice, and then in a moment when no one was looking, he knocked Luke out with the cricket bat and then stabbed him to death. Shortly after, Greg was shot by police. And this crime was obviously incredibly public and it just shocked and horrified the whole nation. No one could understand why it happened, except for Rosie Batty. Family violence happens to everybody, no matter how nice your house is, how intelligent you are. It happens to anyone and everyone. And this has been an 11-year battle. So this is Rosie speaking to a crowd of media outside her house the morning straight after Luke was killed. When you're involved with family violence, friends, family, judge you, the woman, for the decisions you should make, the decisions you don't make. And she would spend the next four years trying to make the whole country understand 
that we shouldn't have been surprised, that domestic violence is widespread and that it's preventable, but only if we talk about it honestly and if we're willing to make some really major cultural and practical changes. But you're the victim. But you become the person that people condemn. And people here and reading this will say, why didn't you protect him? In speaking publicly that morning and beyond with such grace and force, Rosie sparked this wave of social change and national conversation about domestic violence. And I'm bringing you this story today because it's been four years now and I want to look back on how far Australia has come because I think there are lessons that the rest of the world can take from what Rosie did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when one in three women in the U.S. are experiencing domestic abuse, like, we need all the insight we can get on this. So, Claire, you actually went to Australia to meet Rosie, right? Yeah. So, over the holidays, I went back to Australia, and I got to speak to Rosie at her rural property just outside Melbourne. How are you? Oh, thank you. Hello. Nice to put a face in it. She even made me a cup of tea. How do you have your tea? Do you have herbal or normal in this breakfast? I have anything, everything. So whatever you're having. (laughs) I switch actually. Janet's been here. She's got English ancestry, so she has a cuppa all the time. Oh yeah. And her cuppa tends to be, you know, your twinings stuff. Yes, me too. My dad's English, so I've grown up with Earl Grey twinings. You know what? I'm English and we never ate that. We never really? had a little cheap bloody typhoon tea. <laughs> Yorkshire tea, that kind of stuff. It was oh, actually yeah. a dream come true to meet her and to talk to her in person because I was a reporter in Melbourne when this all went down, but I never got to speak to Rosie one-on-one. So I'm excited to tell you more about Rosie, what's happened in Australia over the past few years, And also, what's changed in Rosie's life in just the past few weeks? Well, we can't wait to hear it. So, Claire, before we dive into Rosie's story, had there not been a national conversation about domestic violence in Australia already? Um, maybe it sounds like, uh, duh, Australia, why didn't you ever know that domestic violence existed? But of course we did. Like, we we were well aware of domestic violence as an issue, but it was just kind of siloed. It was like its, its own thing that unless you were directly affected by it, I don't think you saw it as your problem or even your place to be, like, involved in in some way. And in fact, I actually can't even remember a time where I heard from another victim of domestic violence before Rosie, like directly heard from another victim. So what made Rosie a sympathetic face for this issue? Well, this is the thing that I think is one of the things that's so striking about Rosie was that like she did everything so-called right. She was just throughout her whole relationship with Greg, the strongest, most persistent advocate for herself. She fought for herself and her son at every single turn. And then ultimately the system that was supposed to help protect her, like the one that we're told, you know, don't stay in a relationship, seek help from police and so on and so on. It failed her. Yeah. So tell us about Rosie and Greg's relationship. Yeah. Well, like Rosie said that morning after to reporters, this had been an 11 year battle for her. When Rosie and Greg got together, she didn't see his behaviour as abusive. 
she just saw it as weird. He liked me and wanted it to be more of a um, a, re- a relationship. I kind of was quite flattered. And then very soon after that, he started seeing somebody else, which was my first taste of a confusing dynamic. Greg messed with her in ways like this. Like he would brag about sex gods that he'd slept with when he's meant to be dating Rosie. So they dated on and off for years with Greg doing lots of things that Rosie just sort of considered odd, things like that, or like he would suddenly become filled with rage and he'd damage her property. He'd like cut up some slippers that she'd given him as a present one time. But he had this sense of humour that she really appreciated. Can you tell me about your very first date with Greg? Well, actually, it was was quite a disaster, really, when I think back. They ended up going on this really long drive. I can remember feeling like I really need to go to the toilet. I really need to go to the toilet. And um, And she didn't know what to say. It's like a first date. It's kind of awkward. There's nowhere to go to the bathroom. She actually wet her pants in the front seat of the car with Greg. And I thought the best way to do this is just pretend it never happened and have some shred of dignity left. And then it was some weeks later that Greg said to me, so how long have you had a bladder problem? And that was his way of breaking the ice and because and, he was he could be a funny man, you know. So that was I said, I never want to talk about it ever again. And that was that. Oh, no, I hate that I'm laughing at his joke. Oh. <laughs> I know, gross. But that was one of the things that, like, they actually shared this kind of quirky sense of humour. And um, so he was charming and she was a transplant. She's actually from the UK, if you hadn't noticed. So she really valued that company that Greg provided to her as someone new to the country. So was there a turning point when the abuse escalated from this verbal and emotional and abuse and property damage to more direct physical violence? Yeah, well, there's one step before that. Because the thing is, Rosie never expected to be a mother. She didn't want parenthood from this relationship. She she actually never wanted to be a mum. One of the reasons I, you know, I didn't want a child was because the fear of loss was too great. And, uh, you know, that's the irony of it. You felt that that was a reason you didn't want to have something yeah. you would love so much that you might lose yeah. them. Yeah, wow. because I lost my mum when I was six. So Rosie, Rosie did become pregnant with Greg because he refused to wear a condom. But if she didn't want to be a mom, why didn't she have an abortion? Because after she realised she was pregnant, she said she talked to friends of hers who had always thought, you know, that she would be such a great mother. And so Rosie was kind of convinced and she decided she would keep the pregnancy. And so when she um, realises that she's pregnant and by this point she's pretty sure that Greg's behaviour is beyond odd, it's like not something she wants to be around at all as a pregnant person, she completely cuts romantic ties with him. Like they were never married, um, but they were pretty much living together and she ended things there and she never went back to him for a relationship. And so then when Luke was born, they're no longer living together, but Rosie did feel it was important to at least allow Greg access to his child. You know, I really wanted to support Greg's relationship with his son. Um, I felt that by allow him into my house with Luke, it meant he could be hands-on, change nappies, feed him, being part of his everyday life, you know, so he would come up for a few days. It would be good when he first came. He would help me. We'd have, you know, it would be nice to have his company and then before you knew it, you'd be arguing and off he would go again. 
And that arguing eventually turned into something that Rosie would more clearly label as abuse. Particularly this one day when Luke was two years old, Greg had picked him up from daycare and dropped him back at Rosie's place. But when he dropped him off, Rosie sort of mentioned, like, it's a cold day and where's Luke's jacket? You've left his jacket at school. And it escalated into him throwing a ride-on cart made of metal in my direction, absolutely terrifying Luke and I, and him pulling my hair and pulling me down. And he said, if you ever stop me from seeing Luke, I will kill you. So Rosie is completely terrified by this encounter. She immediately seeks an intervention order, which is what here you'd call a restraining order. So getting that intervention order means that Greg can't come near the family, right? Can't come near Rosie or Luke. <laughs> oh, um, if only. Seriously, there are so many things that these uh, intervention orders fall short on. First of all, this is only an order to prevent Greg from spending time with Rosie, not Luke, because the judge says until he's been violent towards Luke, he should have his access rights. He's only um, shown any kind of violence towards Rosie. So sure, like there should be some restraint between the two of them, but he as a father has the right to see his child, his two-year-old son. But I mean, it seems to be common sense that if someone is threatening the mother of the child, then the child is also potentially endangered. So is that an actual like legally instituted loophole or were people honestly just fine with Greg still associating with Luke. The judge didn't see grounds for preventing Greg from seeing Luke. Greg's motivation always seems to be geared towards Rosie. Like, he wants to scare her and manipulate her, and she didn't ultimately feel like Luke was in danger, only her. And it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, but children getting automatically included on intervention orders is an issue victims face in the U.S. as well. God, I think, though, when it comes to the criminal justice system, usually just assume it's the most complex answer. It's like the opposite of Occam's razor. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing about the intervention order is that it actually needs to be enforced by police to the perpetrator, so issued to the perpetrator, for it to be valid. And in this case, it was pretty challenging to do that because, see, Greg had some pretty serious mental health issues that we haven't really delved into yet. And because of that, he struggled to get secure housing and he had no fixed address. So police couldn't even really track him down to issue these orders, let alone get him the help he needed. And this whole thing of Greg being threatening, of Rosie being scared, and police not being able to do much, that went on for the next eight years. Until one day, when Luke is 10 years old, he comes home from a visit with Greg And he mentions to Rosie, kind of coyly, that his dad showed him a knife in the car and his dad said he wants to leave this world. And so that was the point where I was in court and mentioned that to the magistrate and she stopped him from being able to see Luke. From this point on, Greg was only able to see Luke in public places. So this was a total win for Rosie, but it meant Greg had less power than ever before. And it was only a couple months later that he erupted and murdered their son on the cricket pitch and that Rosie found herself in front of the news cameras trying to work out what the hell had just happened. 
The violent death of a child at the hands of a parent is hard to comprehend. And tonight, a community in Victoria is struggling to understand the events that occurred last night at a suburban sports ground outside Melbourne. Killed by his father at cricket practice in Victoria. Victoria in Australia, as parents and children watched on in horror. Rosie Bassey spoke to reporters on Thursday morning and revealed her estranged husband had a history of violence and mental illness. She also paid tribute to her son. No one loved Luke more than Greg, his father. No one loved Luke more than me. We both loved him. Luke was killed by his father. We need to deal with that. When we come back, we'll find out what came after Rosie's candid speech to the media. Don't go away. We're back. And we're at the point in her story where Claire and the rest of the public in Australia first came to know Rosie the morning after her son was killed by her former partner and she stepped outside to talk to the media. Claire, do you know what was going on in the interim that eventually led Rosie to decide to come out and speak to the press? Well, Rosie didn't get home till about 6 a.m. that morning. Her night before was basically like this endless blur of police interviews and friends offering support and coming back to her house. And... At some point I remember waking up and the house being full of people. They were talking about asking the media to leave because I think in the movies that's what you do. Somebody is nominated. Of course I didn't have any family there and I just immediately kind of sat up and thought, I don't like people protecting me and I don't like people making decisions on my behalf without consulting me. That's that fierce independence spirit, I suppose. So I think I felt, hang on a minute, I I will do this. I remember then being in the production studios, then looking up at the TV with the other producers and seeing Rosie Rosie's face coming onto the screen, speaking to a crowd of reporters. And our studio just fell silent, like looking at her and this incredible grace and clarity that she was speaking with. And you were a victim. And you were helpless. And an intervention daughter doesn't stop anything like this happening. So when people say this is what you should do, they don't really know what they're telling you to do. But when you actually finally decide enough is enough and decide to go through a court process, as I said, you do not know what the outcome will be and you've got to be prepared for the outcome. And the outcome can be at the loss of your own life. Everyone thought... I was the one at risk. It's hard for me to describe how revolutionary this felt to see Rosie hours after her son's death stand up and speak to the media like this. This kind of thing just didn't happen at the time. Um, Australians, I guess, tend to be more private about their feelings than Americans and much more media shy. And we'd never really seen a victim of domestic violence speak up this way. In fact, we'd actually had two very other high-profile, really horrific murders of children by their fathers in recent years. Like, they were well, well known across Australia, those cases. But in neither of them did we get to hear from the mother. Those stories were reported through court proceedings and through the perspective of the police and even the perpetrator. 
And that's partly because it was standard procedure for even domestic violence organisations that worked with survivors to shield them from media attention. We were terrified of them being crucified in the media, which, you know, back then was um, a strong likelihood. This is Fiona McCormack. She's the director of Domestic Violence Victoria, which is a major advocacy organisation. I wanted to talk to her about why there was this kind of um, divide between the media and victims of domestic violence. The ethics of it, the risk to her, the increased risk for her in speaking out about it uh, for, you know, in terms of retribution from him. Um, so we wouldn't give them uh, victims, we wouldn't put them in contact with victims. Did you sort of think of the media as enemies? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we didn't want to have anything to do with them. We never, you know, it was quite a radical thing to consider that we might engage with the media as a political strategy because we had no faith in them. Which, that is totally fair. But Rosie was so willing to be a window into the victim side and it was so powerful because, especially at first, she was really just speaking from her heart. However it came out of my mouth, whatever came out, I had no idea that I would say it and, and what I said would resonate. I, I certainly didn't have a script. I certainly didn't have any agenda. I just said what I said. What the hell can happen to me after now? You know, nothing can happen to me again. After that morning, everyone wanted to speak to Rosie and she jumped at every chance to share her story on behalf of all victims of domestic violence. It sort of became this snowball effect where Rosie would be interviewed about what had happened and then people would be really struck by what she said and like a politician would respond and then Rosie would be asked to comment on that response and then there would be like more reaction from other media and so it just like on and on and on like that. And even though she didn't expect any of this attention, she started to recognise how important the message she had was for Australia. What was Rosie's message to the media? Like, what was she saying? And how did she cut through? Well, I want to play you this one clip from one of Rosie's many prominent media interviews because it's a perfect example of how she had just begun to shatter the usual conversation around domestic violence. So first you're going to hear a journalist talking about legislation that proposes to punish women who fail to report child abuse by their partners. And then you'll hear what Rosie has to say about that. You have to get out. You absolutely have to get out. And yes, there are huge economic costs often associated with that. Yes, there are often other things. But anything is better than staying in an abusive relationship. Frankly, to say that, you know, you're going to not report a case of child abuse or child sex abuse uh, by your partner because you are scared for your own safety, I'm sorry, it is not an excuse. I am absolutely outraged. I was living in hope that because of Luke's tragic death, it would bring a huge awareness to family violence. This is beyond my comprehension how, again, the woman who's the mm. victim is punished. And Joe, your comments are so, so misguided. Right. If you minimise how it feels to be feel unsafe, and when we're talking about unsafe, we're talking about the risk to our lives. She was teaching us what it was like to be a woman in a domestic violence situation and to have done everything you're meant to and still have the worst possible outcome. And you know what happened to me? Greg had finally lost control of me. 
uh, to make me suffer. And the final act of control, which was the most hideous form of violence, was to kill my son. So don't you ever think that if we don't report, it's because we don't want to. It's because we are so scared about what might happen. Rosie, as someone... As you have Rosie, no Rosie. Why on earth would we feel the shame and be ashamed? What is it that's so wrong about our society that has shifted the blame and the shame is on the victim? And the perpetrator can continue to be employed, drink with his mates, be embraced in community and family, and their violence minimised, excused or ignored. What on earth is going on with our society? You know, it's not our responsibility to stay safe. It's a man's responsibility not to use violence. The, the shame needs to, you know, go to where it's deserved. But then I wonder also if so many women who would have been in your um, position want to remain very private because of the stigma that you mentioned, because they don't want to be that woman in the public eye. But you owning that so publicly, I think as someone working in the media, it really made it possible to talk about it in a new way because there was now Rosie Batty, there was the face of family violence mm -hmm. and you were very relatable. Yeah. I mean, it was through Luke's tragic death. I'm hurt. If he hadn't died, I wouldn't be hurt. If I wasn't white, middle class, educated and privileged, I wouldn't be hurt. So you look at all these other marginalised women and people with no voice and there's a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot. And so I never take that for granted. And I like to say it as it is because for an Aboriginal woman to be heard, you know, who's 35 times more likely to experience violence and 10 times more likely to be murdered, you know, you, you, these are hideous statistics. And this is one of the things that's so admirable about Rosie. Like she was educating herself as she went. She was doing her homework and finding out, you know, all of the facts and figures. And she actually rose to this incredible kind of pressure and expectation that the public imposed on her to have all the answers. So did she work to elevate the voices of those marginalised women? Well, she went on to found a an organisation, the Luke Batty Foundation, um, that raised money and um, ran advocacy around domestic violence. And a really like prominent focus of that organisation was to visit remote communities and in Indigenous communities and advocate on behalf of um, those really un underrepresented victims. So throughout the year after Luke's death, Rosie did more than 250 speaking events and countless media interviews. She spoke at schools, at police conferences, at corporate retreats, and even at Parliament House. Actually, in 2015, she was named the Australian of the Year, which is like a huge honour. It usually would go to public intellectuals or scientists or filmmakers, very well-known people. Here's a little bit of her acceptance speech. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. I am truly honoured. I would like to dedicate this award my beautiful son, Luke. He is the reason I have found my voice and I'm able to be heard. Whilst we celebrate the wonderful country that we live in today, there remains a serious epidemic across our nation. No matter this where is all just to live, say that suddenly Rosie Batty is a household name 
and her voice was just everywhere we turned. And that meant that domestic violence was an issue we were finally confronting. So next, I want to tell you where this all led, both for Australia and for Rosie. After the break. Stick around. We're back. And our producer, Claire Rawlinson, is telling us the story of her hero, Rosie Batty, who she got to speak with at her home in Australia. Yeah, and it was so nice going to Rosie's house, like this beautiful rural property in amongst the gum trees. And there were pictures of Luke all over her house. Like you can tell she still thinks about him all the time. And um, and, it, and it is still a journey of where do you fit in? How do you have a life where you, the tragedy doesn't totally define you? But I was also finally seeing this other side of Rosie, She'd actually just had surgery on her leg and so she had her foot in a cast and when we were sitting doing the interview on her sofa, she had her foot resting up and touching my leg and it was just so sweet. It was like incredible to see this woman who's being so public for such a long time, taking time for herself, actually not able to work because she was in um, recovery from surgery. And, you know, overhearing her planning for a dinner party and choosing blood orange for the gin and tonics she'd be preparing. And it was really nice to see that side of her. So, Claire, earlier you said you were going to explain where all of this led. So where is Australia now in all of this? And where's Rosie? Well, we'll come back to Rosie. But Australia has made some real progress. And I mean, beyond the conversation stuff we've been talking about already. So in 2015, the government in Rosie's state actually launched what's called a Royal Commission into Domestic Violence, which is kind of like a special inquiry or a President's Commission. And our friend Fiona McCormack was actually kind of annoyed about that at the time. She was like, geez, guys, we've given you recommendations like a hundred times. For heaven's sake, what will it take for government just to fund? We know it needs to happen, just fund it, because we were, the sector was just, you know, groaning under the weight of demand. But the commission went forward and Rosie was super involved. She told the commission her entire story and made suggestions of ways the government could prevent a situation like hers from ever happening again. And now, literally today, Fiona is working on implementing the reforms the commission recommended, all 227 of them. And so when the Royal Commission came out with 227 of them, we thought, oh, you know, we'll test his, test that commitment. But the, the next budget was $1.2 billion into the Royal Commission recommendation. Now, did she say $1.2 billion with a B? <laughs> yeah, with a B. Yeah. And so... Well, it- is our Australia is the Australian government usually forking over billions of dollars for domestic violence? Um, what is it? It's in our anthem. We are the land of wealth and toil. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of money. That's fair to say. That's a lot of money. So to put it in perspective, in the years before Rosie's advocacy, the standard budget allocations in that state for domestic violence services were about two hundred thousand, and then this jumped to one point two billion after the royal commission. So what does that communicate to Fiona and Rosie and you, Claire? Like. Does that communicate that people want to 
eradicate this problem, that they are serious about addressing it? Or are they just throwing money and hoping that it'll quiet the conversation? Like, I actually take enormous heart from it. And there's something weird. Do you ever have this feeling where it's like kind of amazes you, even though you shouldn't be amazed that people are taking a women's issue seriously and you kind of feel suddenly grateful and you just feel like... like every day on this yeah. podcast, Claire. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's like that. It was like when Fiona told me how much funding had been invested and that like these recommendations were real and how significant they were, I just had that sort of, you know, that warm, fuzzy feeling where I was like, oh, women's problems matter and they should matter to other people. So what is that billion dollars being spent on? Like, what are some of those 227 recommendations Fiona's working on? Right. Well, I mean, I can't go through them all, obviously, but some of the recommendations that stood out to me were things like making new relationship and gender equality programs mandatory in all schools in Victoria and pushing banks to actually train their staff to recognise financial abuse. Also, the state is establishing specialist family violence courts, which will be a more therapeutic approach. And there are these family violence support packages now, which are $7,000 cash packages that women can access if they're fleeing a situation of abuse and they need housing. Another is that there are new laws to prioritise victims' rights over the privacy of perpetrators, which might sound um, strange out of context. But one thing I haven't told you about Greg and Rosie was that the whole time Rosie was trying to make a case with police and the courts for Greg to not have access to Luke, Greg was facing child pornography charges. And police knew this when she was making complaints and seeking these intervention orders, but they weren't able to tell Rosie or use it against Greg in relation to him seeing Luke because of these privacy laws. But, okay, in my head, just like I'm screaming about this, uh... Like, if this is on Greg's record, if these child porn charges are on Greg's record, why Why is a criminal record private? Why A, why is a criminal record private? But B, why was there not more of an effort to put Greg in jail or protect Luke? Because his child pornography charges, like his abuse towards Rosie, was seen in isolation from his relationship with his son. And these are things that... Like, I think everyone looks back and just says, like, what the heck were we thinking? And how did we not connect these dots? And that's why those laws have changed. But just that it did take this commission and Rosie's advocacy to get us there. So if this were to happen all over again, the police would inform her of that? Absolutely. Yeah. And actually now the child is also automatically included in an intervention order. So, you know, that whole thing with Luke not being included, that wouldn't be a problem today. What are some other recommendations that jumped out to you? Another one that kind of raises eyebrows when I mention to people is domestic violence paid leave has been introduced now. Claire, I was actually going to ask you whether paid domestic violence leave was one of those 227 recommendations, but this has only been something that I had heard of in theory as something that would be a huge resource. Yeah. And I want to know, though, what does that actually look like? Are people literally going to their employers and saying, I need to take a a day off for domestic violence? Well, yeah. And if that sounds kind of wild, remember, domestic violence affects one in six women in their lifetime in Australia and one in three in the U.S. So you're probably working with someone who's either experiencing it or is a perpetrator. 
And so this leave is something that people can use when they need to, you know, go to family court appointments or have time to find a new apartment or be in hospital. And in Victoria, we've actually already seen people using this. Just this year in 2018, 143 people who work for the public sector have applied for over a thousand of these days already. Well, and even for people who don't access it, the fact that they're going to see it and have to think about that and why it would be a workplace benefit it seems like it would also go a long way to like destigmatizing this issue and kind of normalizing more of this proactive response to it. Yeah, totally. I think that attitude thing is so key to all of this because you know, there are these recommendations that are quite tangible, um, but then there's also the long term, like the major cultural changes that need to be made, the the undoing of gender stereotypes and inequality that are the foundation for men's violence towards women. And Fiona is in the trenches. She knows she's not going to be kicking her feet up anytime soon. It is incredible where we where we're at, but we're um, we're not uh, we're we're certainly not where we need to be yet. I think that there's a lot more sympathy to this and I think that the work of changing those attitudes needs to be ongoing. And that's something that we're going to have to continue without Rosie. So you asked where Rosie is with all of this now and actually right after I spoke with her, she announced that she was stopping her work in advocacy, closing down the Luke Batty Foundation and stepping out of the limelight. Wait, what? Oh yeah, um, fair enough to be surprised given what I've just told you today. But it actually makes total sense to me. Remember, this has been a non-stop four years straight after she lost her son. She told me that during that time, the work could be pretty overwhelming. There were times when I didn't cope. There were times when I was really hysterical. There were times where I was exhausted. There were times that... But I nearly... You know, by the time I got to where I was going, I'd stand up and do an amazing speech, you know, and, and people wouldn't necessarily have realised what was happening to me before I got there. And sometimes I had meltdowns at the airport because I was just so exhausted or overwhelmed or I don't even know. I look back and I can't even understand, you know, I, I, it was, it's a blur. When I met Rosie at her home, she didn't have that furious, urgent edge to her voice that she did four years ago. And thankfully, because she's in a different kind of place now. But honestly, she seemed never to have had the chance to really grieve Luke's death. You know, I think you immerse yourself so much. Initially, it's almost like you can bring him back through working so hard and then you kind of realise you can't. So what do you think is next for Australia if Rosie's not at the forefront of this movement anymore? Well, um, that's up to us. I mean, Rosie is amazing. Like, she continues to challenge me on why we consider some things private and some things public, why we allow some things to go unchallenged and others we don't. And I will never forget the way that she lit a fire and how many Australians will be (laughs) forever grateful to Rosie. But I think Fiona is right, like, that the job is so, so not done. And we could lose all the progress we've made if we have a change of government, if we don't have follow-through on those Royal Commission recommendations. So we can't leave it on Rosie forever. And that's good. She is ready to move on with her journey now as well, and I'm so happy that she is. And I got to say what 
gives me heart is that women are starting to speak up and break silence. I mean, not only Rosie, who is such an incredible example, but really all over the world. I mean, we're seeing it with the Me Too and Time's Up movements. We're seeing it in things like the domestic violence paid leave happening now in parts of Australia. And I just hope we continue to see these conversations and these actions push beyond the abuses that happen more in the workplace and into the ones that are happening in our homes and in our families, because it's such an important conversation. So to listeners who have experiences they want to share or or questions they want to ask, we hope that you know that hello at unladylike.co is a safe space that you can email whatever you want. Uh, You can stay anonymous or not. We mean it when we say we want to start a conversation. So let's do it. And we want to give a special thanks to Claire, our producer extraordinaire, for bringing us this incredible story. Thank you for letting me bring Rosie's story. I'm so glad that I got to share something from Australia that I'm proud of. Well, thanks so much, Claire. If you want to learn more about Rosie, you should buy her incredible book, A Mother's Story. We'll put a link to it and other resources on our website, unladylike.co. And in case y'all didn't catch it at the top, we are so excited to announce that we're going to be taping a live show in New York on May 16th. And we're going to be talking to all-star unladies, Sashir Zamata and Gia Tolentino. Tickets are available now. Find them at thebellhouseny.com now and go buy six million of them. I think that's their capacity. So hopefully there are still a few available. Yeah. But seriously, y'all, it is going to be such a fun show. It's at the Bell House. Come on out. May 16th. Join the fun. Let's get drunk. Just kidding. No, I will be too nervous to drink. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be too nervous not to drink. (laughs) It'll be a fun dynamic. (laughs) Claire Rollinson produced this episode of Unladylike. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelitz. Special thanks to Peter Clowney. And we are your hosts... Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. Next week, we're talking with another podcast host. Her sex positive show is so amazing that even her dad wants to listen. Does he listen to the spread? I told him he can't. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure you subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app so y'all don't miss it. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. I make podcasts, which is me trying to say podcasts in an American accent. Um, Well, we are uh, likewise working on our um, pronunciation of podcast as Australians. Oh, (laughs) show me. Podcasts. That's a little more Kiwi, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. 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 (laughs) Look, we, we both have some work to do. Stitcher.